All right, ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 6. God willing, we'll finish the chapter. Romans chapter 6, verse 12. <coughs> but in order to appreciate verses 12 through the end of the chapter, you have to remember what verses 1 through 11 were all about, uh, which is basically baptism is the way in which we reenact the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. All the times when we talk about obeying the gospel, all the times when Paul talks about your salvation is through the gospel or by the gospel, it all came to a head here in the beginning of this chapter where he tells you how you're saved by the gospel. He tells you how you're saved through the gospel, with the gospel, and reenacting of the gospel, and that is through baptism. Um, so with all that as the backdrop to where we start now, Romans 6 verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Well, why is he saying that? Well, he says in verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, no, you shouldn't do that because you have become dead to sin. When did I become dead to sin? When I buried it in a watery grave and I rose to walk in newness of life, verses 3 and 4. When I did that, I stopped being a servant of sin and I became a servant of righteousness, a phrase he'll give you here in just a minute. So with that said... No, he repeats himself. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't continue in sin, because grace is not going to come as a result of that. All the sins of the world in humanity's history culminated in the coming of Jesus Christ. If you want to summarize that in a word, grace, that's fine. All the sin of the humanity's history culminated in the coming of God's grace. But that's it. He's come. That's it. It's done. You don't keep sinning to get more grace. You sinned, which brought grace, so you could stop sinning. So you could, you could uh, shed your sins. You could be a new person who doesn't sin. But you say, I, I hear you say, uh, but, but I do sin sometimes. I'm not perfect. I keep making mistakes. Yes, you do. And the difference is you make a mistake occasionally versus you are living in and it is a part of your life to be a sinner. That's the difference. You're still going to make mistakes, but it's the exception, not the rule anymore. And when you commit that exception... The, the, the grace of Christ, the blood of Jesus, is there to wash that sin away all over again as you walk in the light, 1 John 1, 7. So the, the coming of Jesus Christ was that pivot point in human history where you don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. Now you can be a servant of righteousness. Again, he'll say that in just a second. Um, this, this, consider this just a little uh, a seed I'm going to plant here, and I'll water it, and then it'll sprout in chapter 7 of this book. Um, but the person who says, but I sin every day, I sin every day, I sin all the time, I'm sinning all the time. Okay, well, maybe you're a new Christian, so you have a lot of bad habits you're trying to break, all right? But, but there should eventually come a point where your day consists of um, more righteousness than sinfulness. There should come a point eventually in your spiritual growth development where you're doing more good things than bad things, where you're doing more things for God than for the devil. There eventually will come that point where it's 51-49, and then eventually, as you grow, 60-40, 70-30. You probably will never hit something, you'll never hit 100-0, probably never hit 90-10, but maybe. Now, I've known some guys who probably were living 90-10, where 90% of their life was righteous, and every now and then a 10% would pop up and they'd do something they shouldn't do. But you, the point is you'll continue to grow, you'll continue to, to uh, live righteously, continue to do what God wants you to do, and that will become your habit, and that will become easy um, to continue doing. But remember that you're in control of your body. In fact, that's what Paul says in the verse. Look again at verse 12. He says, let not sin, therefore reign. You do not have permission to allow sin to reign in your body. 
you are given a command by God to tell sin not to reign in your body, which means you have control over the process. Sin doesn't just happen to you where you say, oh, I didn't mean for that to happen. Well, you may not have meant for it to get that bad. You may not have wanted it to go that far, but there was a moment in time when you were tempted and you said, okay, and that was the point when you sinned. And then you went down a rabbit hole, and now it's worse than you ever imagined, but that's what sin does. It, it chews you up and spits you out, but you still chose that original time to do the thing you shouldn't do. So Paul is telling you, don't let sin, you don't let sin reign in your body. You don't obey it in the lust thereof. You're being tempted, say no. You have the power to say no. Verse 13. By the way, by the way, you've always had the power to say no. Even, like in looking at all of human history, even before Christ came, people had the power to say no. People could have said no, and people often did say no to sin and temptation to sin. But every now and then when they sinned, before Christ came, they were stained, and there was no washing away the stain, but now the stain can be washed away. That's the difference. Verse 13, to continue that thought. Neither yield you your, my Bible says members, yours might say body parts, your, your things that you do, the things you do with, as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't use them to do evil unto sin. But rather yield yourselves as unto God, as those that are alive from the dead. Consider yourself a person who is alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. You may, I don't mean may by permission, but by possibility, you may use your feet to walk to sinful places. You may use your hands to do sinful things. You may use your eyes to behold sinful sights. You may use your mouth to speak sinful words. You may use your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Those are your members, your things that you do your things with. But now you have the option to do something else. Now you have the power through Christ and his gospel to use yourself as a servant unto God. You have the means to put your old life to death and to be an instrument of righteousness. What is it that Jesus talks about when he says how you love God? God he, Jesus doesn't say you love God with just your heart. He doesn't say you love God with just your body. He doesn't say you love God with just your mind. He says you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they must all in tandem, in, in unison I should say, all be working toward what God wants you to do. Well, the inverse of that is true too. When you sin, you don't just sin with your body. When you sin, you don't just sin with your mind. When you sin, you sin with the whole of you. Yes, there are thoughtful sins, thinking sins that you never act upon, but you're still thinking them. But it's, it is, like there's, there's not a, a differentiation in the mind of God where he's going to send your mind to hell and not your body if you don't wash away your sin. It's all of you or none of you will serve God or serve the devil. So don't yield yourself. Don't uh, submit yourself as a servant of unrighteousness, but rather as a servant of righteousness. Verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. That is not him saying it is not, it, it's not going to happen. Now it can't happen. He's telling you not to let it happen, that you should live as though sin is not going to let this be a part of who you are. It's not, it's not going to have dominion over you. Why? Because you're not under law, but under grace. You are not a person who, who has to rely on uh, checking boxes where you say, well, God told me to do this today and that today and not to do this today and not to do that today. And I had a good day today because I did 12 things and I didn't do 20 things that I was supposed to not do and things I was supposed to do. I checked all my boxes and so I tallied them up and it equals to righteousness. No, it will never equal to righteousness because you'll have that one thing you shouldn't have done that you did. Or one thing you did that you shouldn't have done. You'll always have some mark against you. And there is no one day. God's not looking at it day by day. 
over the course of your life, there will be a time when you didn't check the box when you were supposed to, or you checked it when you weren't supposed to, and now that's on your record, and without grace, if all you have is just law, what do you have? Just a bunch of commandments, some of them you kept, and sometimes some of them you did not keep. And all that does is just dig the ditch deeper. Let me give you an illustration. All right, so try to, try to follow this just as an illustration. This is not exactly how it went down, but just as an illustration. You're walking along the path doing what God told you to do. That's the path of righteousness. You're doing what God tells you to do, right? You're living in a time with just laws. No, no grace, no Christ, just laws. So God tells you to do certain things, you do those things. He prohibits you, you follow the prohibitions. You're doing right, you're following along. But then you slip up, as we all do. You slip up. And now you're down here. You have sin. Sin is you're stepping down. Sin is you're going down into the ditch. Now you're in the ditch. But you immediately recognize you made a mistake. You immediately know, I shouldn't have done that. I have instant regret, shame, remorse. So I want to start doing right again. So you start doing right again. You start doing the things God tells you. You're not going down anymore. You're going forward. Going forward. We're doing right. But I'm down here now. I was up here. Now I'm down here. I'm doing right, but I'm in the ditch. And I'm going to slip up again. And when I slip up again, that's another sin. But I'm going to repent. I'm going to say I'm sorry. I'm going to keep doing right. I'm going to be following the path. I'm going to be doing right. But do you see how I'm two levels deeper than I was? That's the state of humanity before Christ came. That's the sorry state of the world. Is we were trying, not even all of us, but let's just say that at the best of times, we were trying to do right, but we make mistakes, and we keep getting lower and lower. God will give us a law to do, things to obey, and we mostly do them, but every now and then we wouldn't, and that's transgression, that's sin, that's breaking the law, and now we're trying again, and we mess up again, and there is no law that God can give. There is no commandment that you can keep that will undo your taking these two steps down deeper into the pit of sin. There's no law that puts you back to where you were. What you need to put you back to where you were is for God to treat you as if you did not do these things. And that's justification. And you get that through the blood of Jesus Christ. Through a sacrifice to pay the penalty for these things. That's what Jesus' blood does. Jesus' blood goes on your account. And it marks you down as someone for whom the price of this punishment that's deserved has been paid. Therefore, if the punishment's been paid, there's no need to hold it against you anymore. Now you're back up here again. You didn't put yourself back up here. You didn't obey a commandment to put yourself back up here. You had to do something. You had to believe and obey the gospel. You had to be baptized. That's the beginning of this chapter. But you're doing that did not take away your sins. Jesus took away your sins. When did he take away your sins was when you obeyed. We'll get there in verse 17. But when you obey and Jesus took away your sins, he put you back on the path to be where you were, which is right again in the sight of God. And I almost said perfectly, and then I stopped myself, but maybe I shouldn't have, because Jesus does put you perfectly back on the path of God. He puts you right back to where you were, perfectly right. But what will happen after that? You will sin again, but now you've got the blood of Christ. Now you've got the penalty for that sin paid, so now you have the way to get back instantly and immediately. Back on the path of righteousness. Back in the right in the sight of God. That's what Jesus did for you. That's what's offered for you. That's what law cannot do. You're not under this. You're under grace, which gives you instant restoration. Instant restoration power. Sounds like a laundry commercial, but that's the idea. All right? Verse 15, right? Yeah, 15. So what then? Shall we sin? Do we now have license to sin? Because we're not under law, but under grace? Look, if you can tell me it's as simple as just saying, oh, sorry, God, and I get right back, that means I can just sin as much as I want. 
First of all, that's an oversimplification. You don't just say, oh, sorry, God, like they're magic words. There are no magic words. You must sincerely repent and wish you hadn't done that and, and vow to do better. That everything goes into repentance. But no, this, this instant access back to righteousness when you sin is not a license to sin. And there, there should never be any conclusion that would lead you to say, therefore, let's all sin. There's nothing Paul said to lead you to that conclusion. It's possible that the Judaizers, the false teachers of the day that were constantly at Paul's uh, throat, were arguing that Paul was teaching that. Because Paul is like, well, no, you don't need the law of Moses anymore. You don't need circumcision and covenant keeping and all those sort of stuff anymore. Now we have Jesus Christ. We have a new law and a new covenant. All this, all this is done away with. And they were maybe trying to spin that to attack Paul and say, well, Paul's saying you can just do whatever you want. You can sin as much as you want because you don't have the law anymore. Now you've got grace. So it could be that Paul is putting their words out on paper and saying this is, their, this is what they're saying. But is that true? What does he say at the end of verse 15? God forbid. No, of course not. Perish the thought. Get it out of your mind. That is not how it works. You cannot keep sinning just because there's no uh, law of Moses anymore. By the way, there is still a law. Look at that in chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. There is still a law in which you're under. It's just a different kind of law. It's a spiritual law, not a fleshly law, a physical law. Verse 16. As you read verse 16, I want you to remember this is written to Christians. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. I also want you to remember that this is written right after verse 15. Shall we, shall we just sin as much as we want because we're not under the law of the grace? No, don't you know that to whomever or whatever you yield yourself as a servant to obey, that that becomes your master. I yield myself to be a servant to disobedience, to unrighteousness, to the devil, to sin. Well, then I will be the, the slave to sin and it will be my master. And what will that lead me but to death? Or I can yield myself to righteousness, to serving God, to doing what Jesus wants me to do and living how God wants me to live. And what will that lead me unto but righteousness, being right in the sight of God and all the blessings that are attained thereby. So remember this is written to God's people. He's not saying here is the recipe for how to become a Christian. It's as simple as just uh, following Jesus and being a good person and being a, a righteous man and by, by that people mean just doing right things, being a nice neighbor and so forth. You should be a nice neighbor, but you should be a nice neighbor because that's the fruit of the Spirit you're bearing as a child of God, born of the Spirit. It's, it, it, by coincidence you'll find people all over who will uh, change a tire. Okay, it's good, you should change a tire, but that's, that, that doesn't get you to heaven. Okay, otherwise it's salvation is by merit, and we don't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. You're not saved by your good deeds. So you shouldn't. It's funny because people will say, well, you're teaching that you're saved by your works, your works, your works. Well, what, what, who's going to heaven? Well, here, this good man, he's a good neighbor, he's a good man, he's a good person. Well, is he saved by works or isn't he? Is he saved because he's a good person, does good things? Well, no. No, you're not. You're saved by Jesus Christ when you obey Jesus Christ. <clears throat> it's not by works. I'm the one teaching it's not by works. Anyway. So, again, verse 16. Don't you realize that whomever you yield yourself a servant to obey, that you'll be the servant of, whether it's of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. Are you a servant of sin? No, Christian. You're supposed to be a servant of Christ. And you cannot have it both ways. You cannot sin and be a servant of Christ. As a servant of Christ, you will sometimes sin, but you're not a sinner. It is not your habit, it is not your rule, it is not your way of life. It's the exception, not the rule. And when it happens, 
it's disgusting to you, and you repent and turn away from it, as opposed to a sinner for whom sin is a natural course of their life. Somebody read 1 John 1, 8 through 10. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. I guess you should read 7 through 10. 1 John 1, 7 through 10. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. All right, so that's the verse we know. We all quote that all the time. But keep, keep going, John. Verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Step through 10? Yep. So, if, if you had no sin uh, to be washed away, then Jesus would have had no reason to come. And he wouldn't have no reason to say, I came to save sinners. That makes him a liar. His whole purpose for coming, his sacrifice, is to wash away your sin. So it's not you saying, well, I, I am not capable of sinning. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying your attitude should be, I'm not going to sin. That, my, that is my daily vow to God. I'm not going to sin. The devil's job in that scenario is to try to get me to break that vow. And sometimes he's successful. But the, the more I walk with God and the longer I walk in the light, the more unsuccessful the devil should get at that. He should get very frustrated that he cannot tempt me to sin anymore. And so he'll change tactics, not with the, the carrot of enticement, but with a stick of punishment and, and, and uh, hardship. Either way, he's going to come after me, but I would rather him give me the stick than the carrot. <coughs> because if I'm getting the, the stick, then I'm just suffering and I'm going to get my reward at the end of all things. If I'm getting the carrot, then I'm daily being bombarded with temptation and desire and allure. And the devil, who is very old and very smart and very patient, will know how to use what he has to use against me to get me to sin. But we're not any of his devices. We know what he does. We know his tricks. We know his schemes. And so we constantly draw closer to God to draw away from the devil. We constantly learn from our mistakes and get better as we walk in the light. So it's not about either you have ever sinned or you never sinned. It's is sin your lifestyle, or is it not your lifestyle? That's what Paul's talking about. Verse 17. Remember, verse 17, A, written to Christians. B, follows what he said, verses 15 and 16. Shall we sin all we want, and because we have grace, not law? And Paul says no, because whoever you choose to serve, you become the servant of. Whoever you choose to serve, it becomes your master. You serve sin, sin is your master, and no longer Christ. If you serve Christ, Christ is your master, which leads to life. So, you used to be a sinner. You used to be a servant of unrighteousness. But God be thanked, verse 17, that you used to be a servant of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart a form of doctrine, the old Bible says. A, your Bible might say pattern of teaching. You obeyed from the heart a form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Uh, form, T-U-P-O-S, tupus, tupus, something like that. Uh, but forget that, it doesn't matter. Think of a printing press, right? And this is not what a printing press looks like. It's just for illustrative purposes, all right? Not to scale. So uh, you have, you know, big things here, and then you have paper, and then you have a big thing here, you know? And so, uh, again, this is just whatever. So, um, and this is a side. You're looking at it from the side, right? So here's the the, the master that has these um, words on it, and it's, it's it's hard. It's heavy. It's metal. Uh, and it's, it's got whatever the letters are that you're going to put on your paper, right? And you slide the paper on it, and then you have this big weight. This weight goes down and presses on it, and it imprints the letters on the paper. And then you slide the paper out, and now you have the, the writing on the paper. And that way you can mass copy whatever it is you're writing. Uh, 
that's an oversimplification of a printing press, Gutenberg and all that. So that's the idea, right? So the, the paper could not be any more different in terms of its exterior to the, 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 the press on which it, or the letters. It's, this is heavy and it's made of metal and it's, it's, it's embossed. The paper is super thin. It's made of paper. It's, it, the, the letters are flat on the surface. You can't really see them you know, from a side. So they could not be more different. And yet, if you were to look at it from the top and you were to see what's being pressed, this shows the words. And the paper, once it's pressed, shows the same words. It's the same thing, even though it's clearly a different thing. You obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. You obeyed it from the heart. You obeyed a pattern. You obeyed a type. You had something imprinted on you. Well, I, I followed through a, an imprinting. I molded myself to uh, a master copy of something. I'm not the master copy. I was copied by the master. Well, what does that mean? It means look at what Jesus did and look at what I did. What Jesus did was he went to a cross and he shed his blood and he died. And then he was buried for three days and then he rose again. An actual, literal death, burial, and resurrection. I have never done that. No one has shed my blood. No one has put me in a hole in the ground, and no one watched me come up out of the hole three days later as though I had never died. That has never happened to me. But I was baptized. I did go into a watery grave of a, of a type, of a, of a parable type. And I, I did uh, allow myself to be submerged in that grave, so to speak, and then rise from that grave. You can look at them from the side and say they cannot be more different. This is a person who physically died, and you just went in water for a second. This person was buried in the ground for three days, generally speaking. And you were under the water until you bubbled for three seconds, and then you went up again. These could not be more different, but if you look at them from God's perspective, which is always a top-down view, you look at them from the God's perspective, this is a death, burial, and resurrection. This is a death, burial, and resurrection. It's, in that sense, the same thing. You cannot be a sinner anymore. Because you have shed sinfulness. You are not a person who sins anymore because a sinner is somebody who serves sin. You don't serve sin anymore. You're a Christian. You serve Christ. When did that happen? When you obeyed from all of you. Not just your external, not just your body. But from the heart outward, you obeyed a pattern. You conformed to a pattern. You allowed a type to imprint upon you the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in your being baptized. You obeyed from our form of doctrine that was delivered to you, a gospel which was preached to you. Hear the gospel, believe it, be baptized to be saved by it. That's the doctrine delivered to all who wish to become Christians. And yet, Jesus still tells you, take up your cross and follow me. He knew exactly what he was saying. He knew exactly what he meant. And all the times when he says phrases like that in his gospel account, in his uh, ministry, take up your cross and follow me. For Jesus, that was a literal thing. For you, it is not a literal thing. You may, under circumstances, as a child of God, suffer and die for Jesus Christ. Peter literally took a cross and metaphorically followed the Lord up his own hill to be crucified. You may never die for Jesus, but if you are a follower of Jesus, you are always prepared to die for Jesus, to make literal what Jesus meant metaphorical. Take up your metaphorical cross as I take up my literal one. Take up your parable cross as I take up my actual cross. You have already taken up your cross when you obey the gospel. You dying on the cross of putting your sins to death. That's repentance. 
of shedding this attitude of me first and turning to Christ first. And then you buried those sins in a watery grave, and then you rose to walk in newness of life. You underwent the same process in a parable form. And that's what Paul tells you here. You obey from the heart a form of doctrine, a pattern of teaching, a, a way to reenact, a, a way to um, embody a type of something. You are the anti-type of Jesus' crucifixion. And when you did that, verse 18, being then made free from sin. When was I made free from sin? Verse 17, when I obeyed. Context, verse 3 and 4, when I was baptized. When I was baptized, I was made free from sin. Thus, I became a servant of righteousness. Why does he say that? Because he's trying to drive home the point that I'm not a servant of sin anymore. I'm a servant of righteousness. I don't obey Satan anymore. I obey Christ. I'm not a perfect student. Every now and then, I'll listen to the wrong master, and I'll do the wrong thing. But that's why I have grace, to get me out of the hole. So I'm made free from sin when I obey the gospel, and I become a servant of righteousness. Verse 19. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of the flesh. For as you have yielded your members, servants, to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity. Come back to that. Even so, now yield your members as servants to righteousness, unto holiness. My Bible says, iniquity, unto iniquity. Servants of righteousness, unto holiness, unto, ace in the Greek, into. Sin, which leads to more sin which leads you more sin to more sin down the rabbit hole, down the stairs, down deeper in the ditch, whatever your metaphor is. Or, that's option A. Option B, righteousness unto holiness. Righteousness, doing what God wants you to do, that leads to being right in the sight of God, set apart by God from those who don't do what God wants you to do, and then constantly doing that, perpetually doing that, uh, persistently doing that, consistently doing that, so that you become holier and holier and holier. Have you ever heard somebody pray, um, or have you ever heard somebody say, uh, help, help, yeah, pr pray, I'll, I'll say pray. Have you ever heard somebody pray, um, God, help us to be better Christians? Are we all familiar with that expression? There's nothing wrong with that expression. I know some people get really all, all in a tizzy when you hear somebody say that. I had a, a, preacher in, a teacher in preaching school who used to say, don't ever pray, make us better Christians, because there's nothing better than being a Christian. Well, okay, that's apples and oranges. He didn't say that. He said, make us better Christians. There is nothing better than being a Christian. For us, we don't have the option of being God. There's nothing better than being a Christian. But hopefully you will grow as a Christian more and more every day closer to the Lord. And is that not a better tomorrow than yesterday? If tomorrow I'm closer than I was yesterday, is that not better? Is that not favorable? Should I not strive for that? So yes, in that sense, in that sense, I'm better than I was. There's nothing better than being what I am. But I want to get better than what I was. And that just sounds poetic enough to sound right to me. So that's what Paul's saying here. You, um, it's, I, I, in fact, I think the beginning of verse 19, somebody read verse 19's opening phrase in your translation. For as through one man's disobedience. No, that's chapter sorry. 5, chapter 6, 619. I looked down at the wrong right. That's okay. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Oh, yours says flesh. Is everybody's Bible say flesh? Yes. It's just your... I, I'm using these metaphors because it's hard to get this point across otherwise. That's the gist of the beginning of verse 19. Mine says natural limitations. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard to put these spiritual things in terms that we can grasp. All right. But then he, he, having said that, he pretty much does a great job, a bang-up job at the end of verse 19. You yield yourself members as servants to uncleanness and sin, which leads to sin, which leads to sin. That's what you used to do. But now you have the option in Jesus Christ. 
to yield your members, servants, to righteousness that leads to holiness, more holiness, holier tomorrow than you were yesterday, and tomorrow after that. Verse 20. For when you were servants of sin, mine says you were free from righteousness. You say free? When you were servants of sin, you and righteousness had nothing to do with each other. You were completely separate. When you were a servant of sin, you and righteousness were incompatible. Because a sinner and a righteous person are two different things. And so you, you can either be a servant of righteousness and freed from sin, or you can be a servant of sin and freed from righteousness, is the point Paul's making. But you don't get to say, I serve God. What's that t-shirt? I love Jesus, but I sin a little. Okay, ha, 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 but that's not how your attitude should be. I, you should serve God, so you should try to stop sin. Does somebody own that shirt? Lexi, you own that shirt? No. Okay. You made a face. I thought, oh, no. You, your attitude should be, I serve Jesus. And if I sin, it's a terrible... I, this is not your t-shirt slogan. I'm not that cranky old. But your, 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 your mantra should be, I serve Jesus. And if I sin, that's a terrible thing. Nothing to make light of. So you, you cannot... Serve, what did Jesus say? You can't serve God and... Yeah, he says mammon, which is money, but that's just... The love of that's the root of all kinds of other evil. You can't serve God and evil. You can't play it both ways. I love Jesus. I don't want to go to hell. I just don't want to, want to do all the stuff i got to do to not go there. It's one or the other. You're either going to be a servant of righteousness and freed from sin, or a servant of sin and freed from righteousness. You can't have it both ways. 21. And what fruit did you have in those things of which you're now ashamed anyway? Because the whole point was, can I keep sinning? What's a way that I could work the loophole where I get to keep on sinning and still go to heaven someday? There isn't one. You're going to sin, but you have to undo that sin. You have to feel bad that you sinned. You have to repent of that sin. There's no way you're going to get to heaven happy that you sinned ever. There's no way you're going to get to heaven just holding on to a sin with one outstanding sin still on your account. It must all be washed away or it's not going to matter. Because if Jesus forgives at all... He forgives it all. And if you're not forgiven, you're not forgiven. If one isn't, they all aren't. If they all aren't, then none is. So why would you want your attitude to be, what's what's the, the least I can what's the most what's the least I can do for God to get away with still being a sinner? No. There is no profit in being a sinner, verse 21 says. What fruit, what value, what came out of those things of which you're now ashamed? The end of those things is what does it say? Death. What, what comes out of a life of sin? Separation from God forevermore. But now, Christian, verse 22, you being made free from sin, you've become a servant to God, not to sin or the devil. You're a servant of God, and you have this fruit. The fruit of sin leads to death. Your fruit now is unto holiness, and the end of it is not death, but everlasting life. See the beautiful symmetry there? You have these two paths you must take, and you cannot walk both of them. There's no fence to straddle. You can't walk along both paths. You choose one side or the other side. One way leads to death, one way leads to life. And never the two shall meet. And by the way, being a Christian, and you're walking that path, you're walking the path that leads to life, and there's a completely separate path that leads to death, and you're walking the path that leads to life. What happens when you sin? Do you completely get off this path when a Christian does one sin? When a Christian slips up, when a child of God, a faithful child of God, not perfect, but a faithful child of God sins. One sin. Does that mean he's off this path and he's over here? No. Because if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. That tells me that cleansing of sin is found in this path. And if cleansing of sin is found in this path, that means me sinning is in this path. Then how does any child of God ever go to hell? When he stops being someone who sins sometimes 
and become someone who serves sin. Then you voluntarily leave this path to go back to this path. As we learn from Peter in 2 Peter, that's like a fate worse than what you had before. Because now, now you knew what you had and now you've lost it. Now you're like a dog going back to his vomit. Now you're like a pig who's been cleaned going back to the mud. This is not, God is not holding you over the fire by a thread waiting to snip it the moment you make one mistake. You say one wordy dirt and he cuts the cord. That's not how it works. What, how it works is you'll say something you shouldn't say. Think something you shouldn't think. Do something you shouldn't do. And then because you're in this life and you want to stay in this life, you will say, I shouldn't have said that. Shouldn't have thought that. Shouldn't have done that. God, please forgive me. Or someone else, if it's pertinent, you please forgive me. And then once you do that, the blood of Jesus cleanses you of that sin. 1 John 1.7 is talking to Christians. It's not a recipe for how to become a Christian. It's a recipe for how to get to heaven as a Christian. You walk as a child of God in the light. And when you sin, walking in the light, you still have fellowship with God. Because the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses you from the sin you just committed. Not the ones he's already washed you from. Why would... Why would he be washing my? Why would he be perpetually washing me from the sins he already washed me of? Those sins are washed and gone. I got a whole new sin I'm going to do tomorrow, and he'll wash me of that one because tomorrow afternoon I'll repent of it. That's the difference here. This this is not this is not a person who's fallen away. This is a person who's faithful, not perfect. This is a person who's fallen away. He's fallen out of the light. He's gone out of the light. He's gone into the path that leads to death. Verse twenty-three. And that path, the wages of sin, you get what you pay for. Do the work of the devil, the devil will pay you a day's wages. What's your day's wage for sinful living? Death. But it's not the wages of God. It's not the payment of God. You're not earning anything. It is the free gift of God. Pause. Somebody read Luke 17, verse 10. Luke 17, verse 10. In fact, there's like two or three verses preceding that, but I don't remember where it starts. So just read verse 10. Let's see what that, see where that is. Luke 17, 10. Even so, you also, when you shall have done all the things that are commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which is which it was our duty to do. Unprofitable there means I haven't earned any payment. Okay, it's not saying I'm, I'm a worthless person. It's, it's not like that. It's saying I haven't done anything to earn any payment. But so read, read what's the verse just before that? How's it start? Verse 9. Um, the thief. No, go back a verse. Go to 8. And will not rather say. No, go back to 7. Somebody, if you know where it starts. No, no. We'll just, we'll just, we'll just play. Okay. No, it's after that. No. Six. Right, I started verse number 6, Gary. My bad, y'all. And the Lord said, Here you go. If you had faith as a grain well, of mustard It's the next verse, by the bad. It's, it's, it's good anyway. Keep reading. It's all you good. Would, you would say unto this sycram tree, Be thou rooted up, and be thou planted in the sea, and it would obey you. But who is there of you, having a servant plowing or keeping sheep, that will say unto him, When he has come in from the field, Come straightway and sit down to me. All right, let me pause right there. Here's what Jesus is saying. Who among you that is a, a lord of a house and you have people who work for you, right? Servants in the house. Would say to the servant, and he, he phrases it just such a way so you almost have sympathy for him. Here's a servant who's been out in the field all day. He's hot, he's sweaty, he's tired. He's been working for you all day. And he comes in after a hard day's work. And Jesus says, because he knows people, which of you is going to say to that servant, hey, come sit down, let's have dinner together. Keep going. And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith 
You'll say to him, no, you don't eat. I eat. It's my dinner time. You come in from a hard day's work. It's my dinner time. Make my dinner. Make my sandwich. No, I'm just kidding. It's not my way. Right, keep on. Drink thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken. And afterwards, thou shalt eat and drink. He's not, he's not saying you don't get to eat. He says, me first, because I'm the master, you're the servant. You've been working all day. Well, that's your job. That's what you're here for, is to be a servant and to do the work. Now you come in. Well, there's more work to do. I need my dinner. So once I have been fed, then you can eat. Keep going. Let the thankful servant, because he did the things that were commanded. And you would think, well, of course you should say thank you. But Jesus is not talking about politeness. He's talking about earning. Has he earned even? Has he even earned a thank you? Does he deserve a thank you? Even so, you also, when you shall... No, you missed the line. Read the, read the end of the previous verse. Does he thank the servant? Because he did the things that were commanded. Oh, is that where your Bible stops? Your verse stops? This should, should be in the old Bible. It says, I trow not. Which is a Shakespearean way of saying, I don't think so. So keep going. Even so, you also, when you have, shall have done all the things that are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which it was our duty to do. You work and 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 you serve and you serve and you serve and you serve. And then you come in and the master says, it's my time to eat now. I want my dinner. And then when I'm done, then you can eat. And you don't grumble and you don't complain because you're a servant. Don't run away with the metaphor. Don't mix the metaphor. There are other metaphors that are much easier to swallow where we get to eat our meal with the Lord. It's a big banquet in heaven, all that. That's a different metaphor. Don't mix your metaphors. In this metaphor, your job is to think of yourself as a servant who serves. That's your job. You serve and you serve and you serve. And then you come in after a hard day of serving, and the master will say, my dinner time, and then you eat. And then after you've served him, after a hard day's work, and you serve him your dinner, do you deserve a thank you? And Jesus says, no. Not even that. It's implied in his translation. It's a, it's a, um, uh, a rhetorical question, but the answer is implied. No. You don't still even then say thank you. Because you don't earn anything. You don't earn a dollar. You don't earn a penny. You don't even earn a thanks. You are a servant. You think of yourself as an unprofitable, an unearning servant. You just do what is commanded you to do. Romans 6.23, and then the bell's going to ring. The wages of sin is death. If you want a payment for what you've done, what you've done is sin. Your payment is death. Who wants that payment? The free gift of God. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you don't earn anything. You want to talk about earning something, you earn hell. You don't have to go to hell because Jesus made, paid the price so you could go to heaven instead. End of Romans chapter 6. We'll pick up next week with Romans chapter 7. Easily the most misunderstood chapter in the book, if not perhaps the whole New Testament. You get to appreciate the context of Romans 7, not just in the book, but in the way Paul writes it. And you have to appreciate when Paul wrote it. Because Paul was a man who was fortunate to live, maybe fortunate is not the right word, but Paul was able to live on both sides of the cross. He grew up and he lived in a time when there was no uh, crucifixion to wash away sins. And he grew up after the time when you could repent and be baptized. So he has that unique perspective, and he's going to play with that perspective in Romans 7. So that's it. I'm 30 seconds early, I guess, but I'm not going to start a chapter that, that soon to the end. Thank you all for your patience and study. Romans chapter 7, God willing, next week. Yeah. <laughs>